Welcome to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association. I'm Tom Thorpe, the podcast editor. The WFA is the UK's leading Great War History Society. It is dedicated to furthering interest in the Great War. The Society has over 6,000 members and 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website, westernfrontassociation.com. On this second episode of the podcast, we investigate what the British and the Germans learned from their experience of fighting on the Somme, speak to psychologist Peter Hodgkin about how soldiers cope psychologically in the trenches, and finally, investigate the critical role Wood played in the fighting on the Western Front. Our first item features two interviews with historians who wrote articles in the latest edition of the WFA's journal, Stand 2. Stand 2 features historical articles, book reviews and news on all aspects of the Great War. It is sent to all WFA members and is published three times a year. You can obtain your copy by joining the WFA. Details are on our website. The latest edition, number 105, coincided with the centenary of the end of the Battle of the Somme. It features two articles on how the Germans and the British experienced the battle and what they learnt. Stephen Barker examined how the British 2nd Division learnt lessons from its fighting in November 1916 at Beaumont Hamel and Dr Jack Sheldon explored how German defenders responded to the British introduction of tanks at Flairs Corselet in September 1916. Giving the British perspective on combat learning on the Storm is Stephen Barker. His Stand To article examined how an attack by the 2nd Battalion of the Oxfordshire and Buckinghamshire Light Infantry on the 13th of November 1916 near Beaumont Hamel helped inform a lessons learnt document written by their divisional commander Brigadier Kellett after the action. I started by asking Stephen to give a brief account of the Ox and Bucks action and what lessons Brigadier Kellett drew from their attack. Yeah, the objective of the uh, second Oxen Bucks was to advance across the Redan Ridge to Frankfurt Trench. They were in the second wave on 5th Brigade Front, and they made five distinct manoeuvres that morning. They supported the consolidation of the brigade capture of Beaumont Trench, which was the first objective. They then secured the brigade flank. Following that, they advanced to the objective, Frankfurt Trench, but many of them became lost in the fog and made their way into Lager Alley, actually at right angles to the correct line of advance. Incredibly, they then reformed and took a foothold in Frankfurt Trench, the objective, and finally they were able to carry out uh, a fighting retreat in the face of a fierce German counterattack. Um, the lessons that Kellett drew, which relate to the second of Oxenbuck's experience in the assault, are the importance of maintaining direction, the significance of keeping close to the creeping barrage, being able to reorganize and go again after the initial assault, using the rifle and bayonet, not the grenade, to take enemy trenches, and finally securing flanks during an assault. The way that you describe that seems really complex and it seems to be completely different from early operational experience on the Somme. I'm thinking some of the attacks where they walked out of the trenches and sort of moved across no man's land following an artillery barrage which lifted at set periods. Do you think this, what happened obviously with the Oxen Bucks was significantly different from the early part of the Somme? I think what it shows is that there some of the lessons from the early part of the Somme campaign were being learned. Uh, for example, the degree of flexibility and initiative that was being passed down to the, particularly to the subalterns and to their senior NCOs. So, for example, the second Oxen Bucks, uh, the fact that they are able to organise and reorganise two or three times, that's a, a good example of the changes in operational practice compared to, for example, in the first 
um, two or three weeks of the Somme where attacks ground down in the initial phase and there was very little attempt often to try and reorganise and make the attack again. What changed uh, in the BEF's operational practice as a result of their fighting on the Somme? There's three things I'd like to focus on there really, Tom. Um, the effective use of artillery, the development of what's been termed the all-arms battle and doctrinal changes. In terms of artillery, uh, in order to make effective assaults, the enemy had to be suppressed. That meant sufficient weight of fire and that the different facets of artillery were used in play together. So, for example, wire cutting, the destruction of enemy trench system, counter-battery fire and the creeping barrage. And that, to me, is the most important lesson that comes out of the Somme. They were learning it by the end of the Somme, but it comes to full fruition in 1918. Uh, the second point is about the development of the all-arms battle. It called for close artillery support for and communication with the infantry, the fact that air support was required and the integration of tanks and infantry working together. Uh, and I suppose finally, the last uh, element of what was being learned at the Somme were the doctrinal changes laid out in the significant manuals that lots of the listeners will have heard. For example, SS-143, instruction of training of platoons for the offensive action, uh, which came as a direct result of the learning on the Somme. Uh, and the three elements there that I would talk about in relation to the Oxen Bucks on the 13th of November, the initiative passed down the chain of command in the middle of battle, are subalterns and their senior NCOs, a, do they know what the plan is and are they able to reorganize their men and then go again? Uh, the integration of different weapon types has been researched a lot recently uh, into a tactical hold. So grenade and rifle grenades, Lewis guns and rifles men, means that platoons are able to meet a range of tactical change, uh, challenges much more flexibly and effectively than they had at the beginning of the war with the, um, uh, with the need for uh, just the use of the rifle. And finally, um, mopping-up platoons were earmarked in SS-143 to deal with those enemy soldiers who were overrun. And finally, I suppose when considering these um, sort of changes and how, how it moves forward, why do you think the BAF was able to learn from its experience? Um, I think the office of class was very different from 19... 14 and certainly from um, from 16 was a very different and more effective body as a whole uh, in 1918 than it was at the Somme. Uh, men who had commanded effective battalions and brigades in 15 and 16 were, were promoted to higher levels in the command chain and were able to make much better use of their experience in the trenches <clears throat> and were in, on the whole very active as a group in disseminating the lessons from the Somme. I suppose also the dissemination of intelligence and the quality of training was much improved in the second half of the war. That had a, a big impact. And finally, the fact that greater initiative was encouraged throughout the command chain not only impacted on the ground in the field, but also in terms of the, the command structure, which became much more decentralised. Stephen, thank you very much for your time. Giving the German perspective on combat learning on the Somme is Dr Jack Sheldon. He has just written a new book published by Pen and Sword titled Fighting the Somme, German Challenges, Dilemmas and Solutions. This book examines how the German army evolves its strategy and tactics during their defensive fighting over the 141 days of the Somme battle. One of the new challenges the Germans had to face was the British introduction of tanks in September 1916, which he covered in his Stand 2 article. I asked Jack to explain how the Germans reacted to this emerging threat and what actions they took to counter it. The initial reaction, of course, was one of considerable shock and surprise that uh, a unique uh, new means of 
fighting the battle had been introduced. Uh, and initially, there was some consternation. Of course, because the German army were pushed back, they didn't actually get to examine physically any of the tanks that were knocked out. Uh, but very soon, they started to consider what things they could do and what they had available. And they, for example, taught the infantry to bundle uh, grenades together, four or even six at a time, so if they were thrown onto the top armour of the tank, they would in fact uh, crack their way through it. And they, they started to issue much larger quantities of armour-piercing ammunition, which was given both to riflemen and machine gunners. But it wasn't really till the following April, uh, after the Battle of Bunkerore, when they captured some Mark II training tanks, that really sort of scientific countermeasures uh, came in. The other element that emerges from, from the article you write uh, and the German sources you quote is the devastating impact that British artillery appear to have on destroying German trench systems, but also their morale. How did the Germans counter this um, new and evolving British threat? Yeah, well, again, this was a, a source of considerable concern. And after the battle, there were a number of assessments written deploring the fact that the sheer weight of artillery was causing men to um, slip to the rear and, and hide away from the battle. They were also very concerned that uh, with the shell hole defence, we're using rather than normal lines, uh, trench lines, that uh, it was too, all too easy for individuals really to cease to take part properly in the battle. Uh, the only thing they could resort to, uh, and it was a source of, as I say, continuing concern, was intensifying training, trying to improve battlefield discipline and bring on the very young reserve uh, second lieutenants who commanded the companies. But it was appreciated uh, straight away that they had a major problem on their hands. And gradually, it was to some extent overcome because, of course, the battles of 1917 uh, tended to be conducted from concrete, concreted positions in the in the Hindenburg line, certainly against the British. But it's, it was it was easier to identify the problem than to come up with a long-term solution. Much is talked about British historians about how the BEF underwent a learning curve or a learning process. Was this true of the German army on the Somme? Yeah, without any doubt at all. They always had a, a very comprehensive system of after-action reporting, uh, the outcome of which used to be redistributed for the information of other parts of the German army. But uh, on the Somme, this reached almost a peak of perfection. There were hundreds and thousands of these reports all gathered together, and they were used to produce various templates for how they might uh, tackle the uh, anticipated Allied offences of 1917. Now, a couple of the, the things that were immediately picked up on was that they were crowding their forward trenches far too much, and so in the latter half of the battle, the forward parts were held in much smaller strength with uh, larger numbers of defenders held back in depth. And this, I suppose, in a way, was, was what led to a much more flexible approach to defence, which was applied to 1917. And, and the thing that always strikes me, Jack, is, is, is the German learning on the uh, Somme is obviously they, they've been fighting uh, at Verdun since February 1916, and they were on, on an offensive role there against the French. Did they apply the lessons they learned from the offensive tactics for their defensive battles on the Somme, or were they very much independent of each other? There was inevitably some read across, but of course the, the whole essence of the way they tackled Verdun was to mass overwhelming artillery force uh, in an attempt to minimise their infantry casualties. And of course there was there were a certain number of counter-attacks, some on quite a large scale on the Somme, but it was a different type of battle. Essentially, the, the, the German defence reacted throughout the entire length of the Battle of the Somme to uh, Allied moves and therefore 
for. It's it, it generated, if you like, a, a sort of a tactics of its own. I mean, I've already mentioned shell hole positions. That was uh, making a virtue of necessity, really. If your, your trench lines are totally smashed or you haven't got much choice, to take cover somewhere where you can. But it was problematic. Of course, fair done, a lot of the fighting was also done in heavily shelled positions. But the nature of the ground is also different than Verdun, which is, has far more deeply incised ravines and so on than, than the Somme does. And so I wouldn't say that there was a particular read across, except that, of course, that the first half of the battle, the defence was shrieking for more air cover and more artillery in an attempt to turn the tables to some extent on the attackers. Uh, but that's as far as I would take it. Jack, thank you very much for your time. One of the enduring memories of the Somme battle is the massive level of casualties suffered by all sides. Some put the total number of dead, wounded and missing at over a million. It has been asserted that up to 40% of these casualties resulted in psychological cases of shell shock. Modern historians have argued that the psychological experience of trench warfare and battle meant that many veterans became alienated from civilian society and many found it hard to reintegrate after the war. However, a new book by Peter Hodgkinson challenges this view, and I spoke to him about his book. Published by Hellion and Company, Glum Heroes argues that our perspective of the Great War soldier is clouded in sentimentality. It argues that many soldiers cope surprisingly well with the trauma and horror of the trenches, men finding support in friendship, religion and other prevailing Edwardian social norms. Before Peter became a historian, he was a clinical psychologist. He has worked both in the NHS and run a private company and specialised in trauma and sudden death. I started our conversation by asking him why he wrote the book and what influence his previous professional life as a psychologist had in shaping how he approached the subjects of soldier psychology, resilience and endurance in the trenches. Well, I mean, I've been a clinical psychologist for nigh on 40 years now. Um, And I began with working with trauma and bereavement and sudden death in in the late 70s. And I was one of the first psychologists to work with major disaster in the UK when the notion of post-traumatic stress was almost an unknown phrase. And and I did some work with people following the Zeebrugge disaster on how they responded to damaged human remains. When I began the MA in British First World War Studies 12 years ago, I, I began pondering about how soldiers responded to the presence of human remains about them, and that led to a dissertation. And as, as part of that dissertation, I started thinking about how soldiers grieved the deaths of their comrades. And I was really quite surprised to find how brief their reactions were. And it occurred to me that friendship, obviously, was uh, of a different nature in those days to modern friendship. So I, I wrote this book, um, assuming that it was easy to set out how awful the soldiers' experience of the Great War was. I set out to find out what contemporary attitudes mitigated the awfulness of the war for them. So what modulated their stress? I, I really don't think there's any other way to try and truly understand the First World War soldier than to actually go and try and put yourself in the place of his attitudes. When considering what protected soldiers from the effects of trauma in the trenches, what was the impact of contemporary Edwardian social norms and values, such as stoicism, widespread Christianity, manliness and duty? Well, this is really is the key to it all. And as somebody once said, and I can't think who it is just at the moment, that the past is a foreign country. And our problem is that we live in an age where stoicism, manliness, duty, they're not only just out of fashion, they're seen as an aberration and an 
an aberration of an unenlightened past. Take, take, take for instance, religion. They lived in an age where religion was universal, but their understanding of religion was terribly different to ours. Most of them had a very simple faith. I mean, people were not regular churchgoers. They went to, their, they went to church for baptisms, marriages, funerals. And in between that, their simple faith was, was almost a folk religion. So it was basic ideas of heaven and hell mixed with superstition, yet it was very widely held. And religion, far from people losing their faith during the war, religion in, in, in actually increased, churches increased their membership during the war. But the soldier in the trenches used this sort of simple folk religion in terms of well, what I've called in the book emergency or, or insurance policy religion. They got religious in the hours before they went into battle. That was the time at which they prayed. But perhaps one of the really, really bedrock things apart from Christianity was, was Stoicism. And Stoicism is, is, is a Greek philosophy that stems from the philosophers, the Greek philosopher Zeno, the Roman philosopher Epictetus. And there are two really important aspects of Stoicism that, that impact on life in the trenches. First of which, I mean, the major tenet of Stoicism was that emotions were, ex were essentially, emotions, feelings were essentially rogue byproducts of wrong-headed thoughts. So the implication is you master your emotion by changing your thoughts. But the second important tenet of Stoicism was that one, one must accept and not seek to change what cannot be changed. This was incredibly important in the trenches because one of the, one of the main feelings that men had was a sense of helplessness and powerlessness. So they did many, many things to try and within their, within their limits um, to increase their sense, of, their, their sense of being in control of things. And it wasn't just that Stoicism uh, and, and the, the, the thoughts about Stoicism were for the upper classes. I mean, the whole bedrock in Victorian and Edwardian society of the working classes was about acceptance of the daily grind. They were the ultimate Stoics societal attitude yes. to, 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 to how you were to present yourself provided a real container to the, to, to, to the most troublesome things in trench warfare, notably fear. And, and finally, there was a popular view that soldiers suffered and returned from the war, damaged individuals, alienated from their family and unable in, to reintegrate into civilian peacetime society. This suggests that veterans uh, psychologically cope poorly from their experience in the trenches. But did you find this was the case? Well, to sort of to over, overplay the idea of psychological damage undervalues coping. And to underestimate it downplays the awfulness of the war. And what we've got to do is to draw a distinction between people who were affected by their experiences and those who were severely traumatized by their experiences. Now, every man is going to be affected by his experiences in war, but we must, mustn't, mustn't forget that shell shock is not a synonym for suffering. I mean, over five million men served as soldiers during the war. I mean, the official tally for nervous shock casualties was 80,000, as presented in the official medical history of the war. There's a better estimate provided by Peter Lees in his book on shell shock, which gives a figure of 200,000. We also 
I, I think when we look at a nervous soldier, we presume that the war was the cause of it. Yet research done at the time in Salonika suggests that about half of the psychiatric casualties in that theatre of war had a previous history of, of nervous disorder. And just one last thing in terms of how we sort of put a modern perspective on, or of trauma on looking backwards. We assume that these men must have had all sorts of horrible flashbacks and nightmares as, as a result of their experience in the trenches. And a recent study of pension records indicate that only 1% of men who had a pension for psychological reasons reported experiencing flashbacks. And this is a really interesting thing because it raises the questions about actually whether men's brains were different in those days. Because we live in a very, very visual environment of television and film and computer imagery, and they did not. So our brain, our modern brains, are attuned basically to experiencing flashback. And there's another way in which that they were different. Peter, thank you very much for your time. Now, much of the history of the Great War has been dominated by subjects covered earlier in the podcast, such as how armies learnt to fight more effectively from their experience of battle, and what was life really like for soldiers in the trenches. However, the whole war effort during the Battle of the Somme and the wider Western Front would not have been possible without soldiers having access to one key resource. We are not talking about explosives, food or water, but namely wood. Timber was critical for the construction of trenches, railways and barracks, as well as being used as a heating source. Rob Newman at the University of Kent has been examining how wood was used and sourced on the Western Front as part of his PhD. I spoke to Rob and asked him to tell me about his research. Yes, well the title of my PhD thesis and research is British Empire Forestry and the Great War and its Supply Networks, Logistics and Environmental Sustainability. So essentially what I'm trying to do is is put this very important natural resource that was vital to the war effort. I mean, there wouldn't have been a Western Front without massive, unprecedented amounts of timber. I'm trying to put that back into the historiography because other than a few unit histories written sort of 1919, 1920 about things like the Canadian Forestry Corps, it really hasn't entered much into the historiography at all. So, so in a way, you're looking at how actually they source wood or, for instance, the BEF in France actually source wood from French forests and then ship it to the front. How did that work? Because you know, I know France is big, but it must have taken vast amounts of, of labour and transportation to meet not only the British Army's needs, but the French and, and latterly the Americans. The beginning, obviously, of the war, you know, during sort of the early war of movement and when the Western Front was start, first being constructed, I think it was very much ad hoc. This was something that beforehand it had gone through the engineers, but the amounts needed weren't um, in any way on the scale that were needed once the Western Front really started taking hold and getting, you know, when you started needing dugouts. It was as that realisation started to kick in, sort of in mid-19, towards the end of mid-19 to late-1915, different sorts of logistical efforts need to be put in place. The, the British government early in 1916 asked the Canadian government if they will supply lumberjacks to come over and work in Britain. They start working in places like the New Forest and up in Scotland where there is still some forests left in Britain, which there really aren't many, because we had before the war just essentially imported everything from the Baltic states and relied on the Navy to keep those lines open. But then obviously shipping space, U-boats and things like this mean that even 
chopping down trees in the UK and sending them across the channel is seen as a, um, a waste of shipping space. It could be men and munitions and things like this. So we then get into the situation later on in 1916 where the British government reaches political agreements with the French government, whereby areas in the southwest and the southeast of France primarily, so places like the Vosges Mountains, which fortunately France had much better forestry before the war than Britain did, and the Canadians are put to work in France, which then cuts down the need for shipping. Obviously, you still have the need for trains, timber where it's acquired, but at least there's no sort of shipping going across the channel in that respect. But another thing comes in is there are actually army areas. So forestry companies from the Canadian Forestry Corps are put into what are called the army areas. So nearer to both the French and the um, British and Empire fronts um, and work much closer uh, to cut down again on, on the sort of the logistical effort of getting it from where it's felled to where it's needed. Finally, what was the sort of environmental impact um, on bits of France and, and the UK that were that were felled? I mean, is, are we still living with the consequences of this action to this day? Well, this is one of the things that first got me interested in it. And I, I'd always been a regular visitor out to the Western Front. And people I'd stayed with, such as I remember Avril Williams in Ocean Villa, saying to me once that that, that area of France had once been orchards, been famous for its orchards and its cider and things like that, whereas I'd always associated that with Normandy. And the fact is that, that those orchards were some of the first things that were cut down by both French and British troops as they needed them um, for, for all, the, all the different reasons. In that respect, I think um, some environmental changes have occurred. However, as I say, a lot of the timber that was cut in France and in Britain itself were taken from areas that were managed forests. So therefore, yes, it had a short-term environmental effect, but the thing about forests is they do grow back. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.